Lord Vader requires all of these necropsies to be completed by the end of the day. The surgical droid says these are substantial specimens. We might require more time. Two episodes, even. Mm, Lord Vader is not a fan of two-parters. He says the anatomy of the alien specimens are quite involved, and if we're to perform a complete analysis, we'll need more time. Okay, fine. But the results better be extremely infotaining. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And you know, last couple of years, Rob, you really uh, leaned into the holidays, but most of those holidays were, were towards the end of the year, the wintertime holidays, mm. the hibernation holidays, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, of course, Halloween, but we do that all the time. And, and I think I get the sense that you are so strongly leaning into the holidays that it has continued into the month of May. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm, I'm bringing that spirit uh, into May, especially for today's holiday, uh, May the 4th, uh, as in May the 4th be with you, which is, of course, the one day each year that everyone gets to go crazy for Star Wars. The one in day. Addi- in, addition, <laughs> in addition to all the other days, I guess. But um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know that even though I think my son and I had gotten super into Star Wars this, at this point last year, I think mm. we kind of forgot about May the 4th being a thing like may the fourth was never a thing when i was a a star wars fan as a kid that i know of so it kind of blew right past me um Mm. but uh but this time i i kind of realized at the last minute oh my goodness may 4th is next week it's uh it's star wars day it's just uh just open season we should do some star wars content you know i would have guessed even as obsessed with Star Wars as you were last year, and I guess continuing into this year, uh, that that May the Fourth wouldn't be your bag. I, I would I would expect that May the Fourth would kind of irritate you. It'd be one of those cute <laughs> little things that gets under your skin. Am I wrong? Um, no, no. I, I mean, I think I don't have oh, okay. any problem with it. I mean, especially since there's like new stuff coming out. I'm like, okay, if that's if this sets the deadline for uh for the the bad batch animated series to come out and makes mm-hmm. them you know put it out then I, i'm glad that we have it otherwise stuff would just keep getting delayed right right okay yes just wedge on into our calendars yeah maybe they'll come up with another star wars holiday this year well some say that there's we have may the 4th as uh-huh. it may the 4th be with you and then right. some say there's revenge of the fifth which is tomorrow <laughs> but i don't know um I, I don't know how how crazy they. Maybe there's something for the sixth as well. But, well, I uh, think I, I think it's going to be appropriate that it will continue after today because we originally planned for this to be one episode, but then as we were working on the notes, we were like, "Oh, wait a minute, we've got like you know fifty thousand pages of content or whatever it is we've got now." So so this will definitely be at least Tuesday and Thursday of this week. It is yes. a, it is a week long May the fourth. Yes, yes, as well it should be. So, obviously, we've talked about Star Wars a bit here on the show in the past, uh, whether it be a discussion of, uh, you know, the question, could Jupiter be blown up by the Death Star? Uh, And I think the answer was probably not. Uh, We've also talked about uh, the mighty Sarlacc, and we also did a Weird House Cinema episode on Ewoks, The Battle for Endor. But in this episode, we're going to take the old monster science approach to uh, the some of the the aliens from the Star Wars universe, you know, using some sort of uh, some bit of fantastic biology and then using that as a way to discuss real world terrestrial biology and finding where things line up, where they don't, etc. Now, standard disclaimer here, we are Star Wars fans, but we are not Star Wars experts. Uh, We're probably not going to perfectly reflect canon or legend uh, with regards to the Star Wars universe with 100% accuracy here. We haven't read every scientific meditation on Star Wars, and we don't know the extended universe perfectly. But we'll do the best we can here, and we'll have some fun with the topic. But we fully invite you to get mad about it. Well, don't, there's no reason to get mad about it. This is all too too fun. But yeah, certainly um, feel free to write in uh, if if you have any actuallys uh, to share with us uh, regarding the creatures we're talking about here today. Well put. All right. Well, let's start with your first selection, Joe. Uh, what did you choose from the the vast and exotic Star Wars universe? Okay. Well, to set the stage, the film is The Empire Strikes Back. 
It's that mid-movie section, uh, the chase where Han, Leia, Chewie, and C-3PO are on the run from the Imperial fleet in the Millennium Falcon. This is after they have evacuated the Hoth base. And there are a group of Star Destroyers that are chasing the Millennium Falcon, and they chase it into an asteroid field. This was one of my favorite parts when I was a kid. I still love it today. There's a kind of, uh, it almost becomes like a James Bond car chase or like Smokey and the Bandit mm-hmm. where, you know, they're like the scene where the cars are zipping around, uh, you know, through obstacles and around traffic, but it's in space. And instead of other cars and a bunch of barrels and just street, you know, uh, 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 tomato carts in the way and stuff, it is asteroids. And, of course, this is extremely dangerous. There are space rocks crashing all around. And uh, the Falcon eventually manages to evade its Imperial pursuers, and it hides in a cave on a large asteroid. Yeah, this is this is a great sequence in a, just a great Star Wars film. It's one of those, uh, like, out of the frying pan into the fire moments where uh-huh. uh, actually it's, like, into a third frying pan or fry, fry, cuz you yeah. everyone's gotten out of hoth you've had that you know tremendous battle sequence with all of its uh, ins and outs then you have the asteroid field and then what happens next is uh, it comes from an entirely different direction well that's one of the great things about the story structure of the empire strikes back uh, is that you know you're cutting between the different characters and the things they're doing but when you're with uh, Han, Leia, Chewie, and C-3PO, it's just one frying pan to another. Every mm-hmm. time they, they get to a new place, they think that they're finally safe now, but then they realize that the floor is Teflon and things start heating up, mm-hmm. and it, it's just on to the next crisis. Uh, but in this cave, we get some creature encounters. So first, the Millennium Falcon is swarmed by a flock of nasty winged creatures with ring-shaped sucker mouths and they're, they look sort of like sulfurous leech bats. These are called Minox. Han and Chewie seem to be familiar with them. Like, the, they, once they see them, Han says, uh, uh, Minox, yeah, yeah. Like, he talks about them like they're uh, very common nuisance animals for space travelers. He says that they're chewing on the power cables. Like, yeah, that's what they always do. And so our heroes, they leave the ship, they go outside, go down the ramp and start walking around outside with these little oxygen masks on while they're Mm -hmm. trying to blast the Minox off. But then they encounter, it's another uh, realizing you're actually in another frying pan moment uh, when it is revealed that the cave that they're hiding in is no cave at all. It is a giant carnivorous worm of some kind, and they have essentially parked down its gullet. And, of course, there's a great escape sequence where they have to rock it out between its closing jaws just in time as the, the teeth are coming together. Yeah. And, and it's a fabulous-looking creature, too, this big alien whale-ish worm uh, monster. Yeah. One of the best. This giant worm creature on the asteroid is not named in the movie. I mean, they say what the Minox are. It's like mm-hmm. it's like it's almost as if in Star Wars, it's like saying, oh, rats, we've got rats here. Uh, we've got Minox, but they, they never say what this thing is. I looked it up and some Pliny the Elder of the galaxy has given its species a designation. It is called an exogorth or alternately a space slug. And Rob, I've got some pictures attached here for you to look at. Uh, of course, we've seen the movie, so we know it, what it looks like. It's just this giant, uh, uh, have, have to be honest and say somewhat phallic-looking worm. It comes up out of the hole. It's got the big jaws clamping after the ship. So it seems to be actively wanting to eat the spaceship. Uh, and then I found another image that I think is from one of the Marvel Star Wars comics. And it's a panel. I, I really don't know the context of how this happens. But there's a panel in a comic somewhere where a Star Destroyer flies into a giant <laughs> Exogorth's mouth. That doesn't look like it's going to end well for for anybody involved there. Uh, but no, certainly not the the, the, the the Exogorth. It looks like that's that's too big of a mouthful. Yeah. Now, there's something very interesting about both of these alien species, the Minox and the Exogorths. Uh, and it's something that I've actually thought about for a long time. I remember having this thought, uh, maybe not when I very first saw Star Wars when I was a kid, but at some point it occurred to me that these are the only aliens I can think of in the Star Wars movies that are not found on a planet, but in outer space itself, on the barren terrain of an asteroid with no atmosphere living in the vacuum. These are vacuum dwellers. Yeah, and I, and I think it was that way for a long 
time. Eventually, they uh, they also introduced a creature called a Purgle uh, that came around. Uh, I think it was introduced in Star Wars Rebels, one of the animated series. And I have a feeling it's going to show up in some live action stuff in the the near future. But they're like a deep space whale like organism uh, with kind of a squid, like a combination between a space squid and a space whale. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're capable of entering hyperspace even. But they're kind of they, they have a lot in common with the design of the um, the exogorth. They're kind of like the noble exogorth. <laughs> Uh, the picture you attached looks mad. He's got like the downturned eyebrow. He looks like he's he's looking for a fight. Well, they 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 explore this kind of like whale like nature where if you're uh, if if you're not treating them right, if you're abusing them, then yeah, they can be quite dangerous. But if you try to understand them, then you realize that they have this very passive and uh, beautiful nature. Oh, I can see that. So it's like the, you know, somebody says about the dog, like, oh, he doesn't like strangers, but when you warm up to him, you know, he's a, he's a real cuddle bug. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, for this entry of our uh, alien, Star Wars alien necropsy, I wanted to, to think about the idea of vacuum dwellers as, as, a, as a proposal, as a concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Star Wars, obviously, it is not hard science fiction. You know, it's not trying to create a... It's, scientifically grounded experience it's a fantasy and that's fine i mean you've got no problem at all with uh, with soft science fiction and space fantasy i love that stuff uh and there are plenty of elements in this sequence that are really nothing like what we'd expect to find in reality so i wanted to mention a couple of other examples of that before we get back to the idea of a vacuum dwelling organism and consider the plausibility of that one example of how this doesn't really resemble reality in any recognizable way is the idea of how dense the asteroid belt in the empire strikes back is how it's just crammed with rocks that are moving really close to each other and slamming together all the time and how this compares to the one example of a real asteroid belt that we know about And this is a standard feature of sci-fi movies. It's not just Empire Strikes Back. I mean, I think a lot of times there are space battles in an asteroid belt that is just a a minefield, this densely packed obstacle course of of giant boulders that are going to smash into your ship and kill you. And the ships have to frantically dodge around through the slamming rocks while they dogfight. Yeah, it's a great sequence, but it is just... um yeah, maddening, just how how tight everything is. And and it just seems like a complete nightmare that anyone would. uh, I mean, it seems like it should be a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kind of moment, right? Like, why would the TIE fighters even chase them in there? Right. Because how could you expect to survive unless you were like a force sensitive pilot of some sort, you know, or like the greatest pilot of all time, like uh, like a Han Solo? Yeah, they'd be crazy to follow us, wouldn't they? Yeah. And I know when I was a kid, I pictured the asteroid belt of our solar system being like this, probably because of uh, especially Empire, but more generally movies like this, that is mm-hmm. just, you know, it's just tight with rocks. Uh, but now we know that is not the case. I was trying to find what is the actual density of the asteroid belt in terms of asteroids of an appreciable size. I found an explainer about this from Scientific American that's older. It's from 1997, so our uh, our knowledge might be a, a little bit updated since then, but this, I feel like, gives you a good idea. It asks several experts about this this question of the density of the asteroid belt. Uh, first of all, there was an interesting story in it that's relayed by uh, Tom Garrels of the University of Arizona, who said that, quote, Some scientists were seriously concerned about the possible high density of objects in the asteroid belt, which lies between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, when the first robotic spacecraft were scheduled to be sent through it. The first crossing of the asteroid belt took place in the early 1970s, when the Pioneer 10 and Pioneer 11 spacecraft journeyed to Jupiter and beyond. The danger lies not in the risk of hitting a large object. In fact, such a risk is minuscule because there is a tremendous amount of space between Mars and Jupiter, and because the objects there are very small in relation. Even though there are perhaps a million asteroids larger than one kilometer in diameter, the chance of a spacecraft not getting through the asteroid belt is nearly negligible. Hmm. And then there was an updated uh, thought that came in after that from David Morrison of NASA Ames, who said, quote, 
There are more than 100,000 asteroids larger than one kilometer in diameter, but these objects are distributed within the huge volume of the asteroid belt. Their average spacing is several million kilometers. Collisions are thus extremely rare. An average one-kilometer asteroid suffers one collision every few billion years, or maybe one or two collisions over the lifetime of the solar system. The spacing is also so large that, seen from one asteroid, even the nearest one-kilometer asteroid would likely be too faint to be visible without a telescope. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, extreme distances between these objects, uh, not because there aren't a lot of objects, there are, but the you know space is gigantic, so the space between them is also gigantic. If you were to fly into an asteroid belt, it's actually unlikely you would even notice it. You probably wouldn't see any asteroids while you were flying through it. Though I did think about something that could make another interesting – I'm sure some movies done this, but it could make a different kind of threat uh, of traveling through an asteroid belt interesting. I think the more likely risk while flying through an asteroid belt is not that you would be smashed between giant space rocks while you're trying to dodge through them, but the chance that you would hit an invisibly tiny micro-asteroid at high speed and it would be like a bomb because of the kinetic energy of the impact because it's going so fast and you're going so fast. Uh, though I guess, of course, it would depend on how fast you were going and what angle you hit it at relative to its own trajectory. I mean, a head-on collision with a, with a tiny asteroid could be catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. Huh. But there's another thing in the sequence that doesn't make sense if you try to bring hard sci-fi rules to it, which is uh, the part where they're in the cave and the Minox show up uh, in that great moment where I, I think uh, Leia is looking out the window and then suddenly the big sucker comes down and it yep. goes, <laughs> which uh, I was talking to Rachel about this earlier this morning. And she says when she saw that part in the theater, when the, the Star Wars uh, remasters or remake, not remakes, the whatever you call them, the remasters came out in the 90s or the early. I guess it was the 90s. Yeah. Uh, that she just like screamed in the theater, just like bloody murder screamed. Yeah, it's startling and gross. Totally. It, like, it still gets me when I watch the movie. It's very sudden, that noise it makes. It's like when the head pops out of the boat in Jaws, you know, when, yeah. uh, uh, when uh, Richard Dreyfuss is like down in the water looking at it. It, it gets you every time. Uh, but anyway, so th there's, yeah, the, the Minox come out. And so Han and Chewie and Leia walk outside of the Millennium Falcon in their regular clothes wearing little oxygen masks. So this is another one of those space fantasy things, because this would not work on a real asteroid. The vacuum would kill you pretty quickly, even if you had a little oxygen mask. Uh, so I found a good explainer on this. This was also a Scientific American article. This was written by Anna Gosling in uh, 2008. And, and of course, uh, one thing we should be clear about is that a, a vacuum, in, as the term is generally used, is defined as a region of space with extremely low gas pressure. Uh, it's sort of a conventional definition because even in outer space, there's not nothing in space. You're still going to have a few random hydrogen atoms floating around and stuff, but it's pressure so low that it's negligible. So once you walk out of the Millennium Falcon, once you are exposed to the low-pressure environment of a vacuum of space, several things are going to happen pretty quickly. One is that because of the lower pressure, gases tend to expand, and this includes the gases that are trapped in your body, trapped in your lungs. So if you're holding your breath or inhaling, this expanding gas is going to cause trauma in the lungs, tearing up gas exchange tissues. Also, the low pressure will cause water to boil at a lower temperature. Uh, and in the case of a vacuum, this means water boils at a temperature lower than your body temperature, which translates to swelling in the body, rapid evaporation of, of water vapor uh, from the easiest escape routes in your body. And primarily, this will be things like the holes in your face, like your mouth, nose, and eyes. And this rapid boiling off of water will, of course, cause very low temperatures around these holes in your face. Uh, think about the way that, uh, you know, the, the rapid evaporation of water cools your body through sweat, except take that to the extreme. Like, literally, your tongue might freeze. And if records of what has happened to animals that are exposed to a vacuum are any indication, you, you also might simultaneously defecate, urinate, and projectile vomit. Wow. So even Event Horizon scaled back a little bit on what this would be like. Yes. 
Now, on the other hand, uh, sometimes movies make it look like if you were exposed to a vacuum, you would explode. And that doesn't seem to be true. It actually does seem like you could survive being in a vacuum for maybe a few minutes. Uh, I mean, it would depend on a number of factors, but you could, most people could probably survive being exposed to a vacuum for some amount of time, something like a few minutes, less than five minutes, maybe, but it would require somebody else who is not exposed to a vacuum helping you. Uh, yeah. Because and, and we, we have seen this in, in sci-fi. I think that's yeah. basically what happens in event horizon. And I think the, and yeah, the expanse has, has, uh, has explored this as well. Yeah, uh, because it, like one of the reasons you would need somebody to help you is that you would ex- you would very rapidly lose consciousness. The low pressure would also cause bubbles to form in your blood vessels, which would interfere with oxygen circulation. And uh, I think the estimate is that this leads to rapid unconsciousness, probably in something like 10 to 15 seconds after you're exposed to the vacuum. And then so you lose consciousness, so you probably collapse and it would go on to kill you within a few minutes if you're not repressurized. This article by Anna Gosling t- shares a story of a human who actually survived vacuum exposure. Uh, so I just want to read this part. Quote, in 1965, a technician inside a vacuum chamber at Johnson Space Center in Houston accidentally depressurized his spacesuit by disrupting a hose. After 12 to 15 seconds, he lost consciousness. He regained it at 27 seconds after his suit was repressurized to about half that of sea level. The man reported that his last memory before blacking out was of the moisture on his tongue beginning to boil, as well as a loss of taste sensation that lingered for four days following the incident. Wow. So all that to say, Han, Chewie, and Leia, these are experienced space travelers. They would know better than to try to walk out into the vacuum of space without a pressure suit. Now, I want to be fair. I have seen some righteous nerds on the Internet (laughs) arguing that, well, maybe because we we now we know from what happens later in the movie that actually they were not in a cave on an asteroid. They were in the Exogorth's gullet. And maybe the Exogorth's gullet creates its own pressurized atmosphere. And okay, let's say I grant that, uh, maybe, but I thought the whole point was that they thought they were in a cave on an asteroid, not in the belly of a giant worm. So it doesn't seem like they would go outside without a pressure suit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I guess if I, maybe the, like the, the ship's readings were like, Hey, uh, you don't actually need a suit to go outside in this, this weird cave. And they're like, okay, that's fine. Cool. <laughs> like maybe they really weren't thinking about it that hard. Like they yeah. weren't asking, well, why would that be? Why would a cave... Mm-hmm. that's supposedly open to the to the void uh have these unique conditions um but i guess if i was going to play devil's advocate and try and like sort of stitch everything together i could I, then maybe yes maybe this giant space slug uh it, it it's uh it's gastric environment closely mimics a terrestrial world and just you know the atmosphere is a little off um i don't know maybe or or maybe that's maybe that's uh, one of the ways that it uh, gets its uh, its food right it just waits for mm-hmm. for spaceships to to land inside its belly and uh and since spaceships are hard to digest it needs to have an <laughs> inviting environment that lures the precious meat beings out of the spaceship right yeah it gets 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 them out there i mean it does have fog rolling around so mm-hmm. it, it almost looks like you're out on the moor once you leave the spaceship. I, I wonder also how fog rolling around would work in a vacuum. It doesn't seem very vacuum-like. It's almost as if they weren't really thinking of it in, in pure physical terms as a vacuum, which mm-hmm. would make a lot of sense, again, because this is space fantasy. Right. I just wanted to say uh, also I I found a picture on the internet of uh, the model of the the giant uh, Exogorth's teeth while it was being created, along with the ILM model maker Lorne <laughs> Peterson inside the mouth looking at it. And he just looks just exploding with joy while gazing yes. <laughs> at the teeth he has created. He, he kind of – he also, in this picture, he's got long hair and a big beard. He almost looks like a human Ewok. <laughs> yeah, I love looking at these old photos of these like, – these these seventies guys uh, working yeah. on these models for this uh, for, for these films. Uh, it's pretty great. But yeah, it's pure joy on this man's face. I wanted to come back to the question that I brought up earlier about the vacuum dwellers. Uh, when we imagine finding alien life forms, not in space fantasy, but in reality, of course, we always imagine finding them on a planet, a planet with an atmosphere. But I was wondering 
Is it biochemically and evolutionarily conceivable that there could be such thing as an alien dwelling directly within the void, within the you know the howling uh, emptiness of space? Could there be creatures of the vacuum? And so I was looking around trying to find some good sources on this. I didn't come across any like direct scientific papers, though if any listeners know of any that I couldn't find and want to send them my way, please do. Uh, the best thing I came across was actually – an interesting BBC article from 2016 by the science writer Philip Ball, one of mm. my uh, my favorite science writers who wrote probably the best book I've ever read on quantum physics, which is called Beyond Weird. I recommended it, uh, I think, a couple of years ago during a summer reading episode. Uh, but in this article, uh, Ball starts off by pointing to a study published in the journal Science by Cornelia Miner et al. Uh, Miner is a uh, professor at the University of Nice in France. And it's a study called Ribose and Related Sugars from Ultraviolet Irradiation of Interstellar Ice Analogs. And so to read from the summary uh, in, from, from the journal Science on this, quote, Astrobiologists have long speculated on the origin of prebiotic molecules such as amino acids and sugars. Meinert et al. demonstrated that numerous prebiotic molecules can be formed in an interstellar analog sample containing a mixture of simple ices of water, methanol, and ammonia. They irradiated the sample with ultraviolet light under conditions similar to those expected during the formation of the solar system. This yielded a wide variety of sugars including ribose, a major constituent of ribonucleic acid, or RNA. And of course, as we've discussed on the show before, RNA is one of the important uh, you know, uh, long organic molecules that is considered a, a possible precursor of the original formation of life on Earth, the first cell. And of course, RNA is, use, is used in life forms today. It's in the cells in your body. And this is not the only study of this kind showing that some molecules important to the formation of a biological sphere, such as sugars and amino acids, can be formed in space, maybe even just on little tiny grains of ice floating around in space by themselves, not on a planet at all. They can be formed in these types of scenarios by radiation acting on precursor compounds. So another example would be that... Um, Researchers for decades have, have found evidence of amino acids in meteorites that apparently uh, these amino acids were formed in deep space. And the Rosetta mission, which intercepted a comet, it was uh, Comet 67P in space in 2014, the Rosetta orbiter detected the presence of the amino acid glycine along with uh, methylamine and ethylamine from a uh, spectrometry reading of the uh, of the comet. So it's possible that important molecules, molecules that are necessary for the early stages of chemical evolution before the formation of the first cell were not formed on Earth, but in space, and then somehow delivered to Earth, maybe on the backs of icy comets that smashed into the Earth's surface when the planet was young. And of course, this is all hypothetical. We still don't know for sure how the first life on Earth came to be. Uh, we actually talked about one very interesting model of this on a recent episode, the one we did about the Nile inundation, where we discussed the idea that the first cells might have been created by the presence of prebiotic molecules like lipids and nucleic acids in areas on the surface of the Earth that are repeatedly subjected to wet-dry cycles. And if you want the details on, on the reasoning behind that, you can go back and listen to that episode. What was it called? I believe the title we went with was The Nile Inundation, God's Water and Life, because there's a little bit of mythology in there, but also just a, a lot about uh, the, the, the annual flooding of the Nile and how it factors into the environment and the history of the region. Right. So we don't know how uh, for sure how it happened, but the process of chemical evolution leading from those organic molecules to the formation of the first cell, meaning a cell capable of replication and metabolism, uh, that's generally assumed to have happened somewhere on Earth or in a or on another planet like Mars, maybe, and then seeded to Earth through some kind of collision and, and travel of rocks through space. And that could be in hydrothermal vents or in puddles or what have you, but it's usually assumed to have happened on Earth. But Philip Ball writes, quote, there is a more intriguing possibility. Life itself might not have needed a warm and comfortable planet bathed in sunlight to get going. If the raw ingredients were already out there in interplanetary limbo, might life have started there too? Hmm. 
Interesting question. And of course, there's another question, which is a follow-up. If it were possible for life to form in space rather than on a planet, would it also be possible to uh, for that life to evolve into complex forms out there in space? Um, now, there are some reasons that this does seem unlikely on its face. Uh, so a, a bunch of uh, Philip Ball's article ends up focusing on ways that alien life forms could have the benefits of a home planet while existing in interstellar space. And the primary idea he explores here is life on rogue planets, meaning planets that are ejected from their solar systems and float through the interstellar void alone or maybe with some moons in tow. Uh, and you, you might think that without a home star, these worlds would be guaranteed to be barren, but internal heating from residual formation heat and radioactive elements in the core and possible tidal interactions with uh, moons that are along for the ride, this could possibly be enough to sustain a biosphere, perhaps in an iced over ocean. But this isn't really what we're talking about, right? We're, we're, we're looking for something that could live in space itself or on the surface of an asteroid exposed to the vacuum uh, where there's no atmosphere, no ocean, just the raw hell of the infinite. Now, in exploring this part of the article, Ball notes something that I had read about before, but I had forgotten about it until I was reading this, which is that um, the astronomer Fred Hoyle who did a lot of important work in, in 20th century astronomy, but now is probably best remembered uh, in the popular consciousness for coining the term Big Bang, which he meant as an insult, like a ridicule of the theory, uh, because he, he was a supporter of the steady state theory of the universe, which is now known to be wrong. Like the, the We know that the universe is 13.8 uh, billion years old, and, and we called the process of expansion leading to the universe we know today the Big Bang, after this, uh, after this negative appellation from Hoyle. But anyway, Hoyle actually wrote a science fiction novel that was published in 1959 called The Black Cloud. And supposedly it's quite good, though I've never read it. But the premise is that there is a giant cloud of intelligent gas that floats around through outer space. And when it encounters Earth, it sort of doesn't know what to make of life that inhabits a planet and it <laughs> becomes a threat to us. But Hoyle did not have a plausible theory for how a such a sentient space gas would, would come to evolve. I think it's just a mystery in the book. Uh, but Ball looks at this question of what the chemical basis of space-based life could be and concludes that despite the difficulties of the environment, it seems like carbon molecules are still probably the best bet for creating biology. Uh, the most common alternative put forward to carbon-based biology is silicon. And I will note that I, when I looked up the, the exogorth on Wikipedia, Wikipedia tells me that the exogorth is a silicon-based life form. <laughs> and also, I think that in addition to eating humans and spaceships and stuff, it eats rocks, it, you know, eats the minerals of asteroids. So yeah, if I think that it's were a, the case. It's supposed to have like a, a mineral and energy diet uh, yeah, that it yeah, perhaps yeah. occasionally supplements. But, you know, another thing I was thinking about is that, okay, uh, two things, I guess. On one level, okay. it could be eat, biting at a spaceship just because it's there or out of defense. It doesn't mm -hmm. really want to eat it, you know, in the same way that you'll have animals in the wild that will attempt to take a bite out of something, uh, you know, defensively, even if it's mm -hmm. not part of their diet. But also... It's so a curious the, mouth. Yeah. yeah. So, but but here's another thing: if the inside of the the of the creature here is essentially an, an ecosystem, um, is it possible that it it is like grabbing things in order to sort of not feed itself, but to supply and feed the ecosystem within it, and that it somehow gets some sort of residual nutrition from that ecosystem? Like it kind of has. It's almost like a hive maintaining a. Um, like a domestic crop within itself, except its domestic crop is just like this swampy world. Oh, my God. So when it eats a Millennium Falcon, that's like its poop yogurt, like the, the probiotic stuff. <laughs> it's trying to supply its interior Minox and like the mossy organisms that line its gullet and produce all that fog we see with some nice power cables to chew on and, and I guess presumably humans to feast on whenever they die. Yeah, maybe it feeds on swamp fog, and but it needs a you know a, a ripe swamp environment there, and occasionally, yeah, needs some needs some new stuff to add to the uh, to the genetic pool. You're so good at world building. This is this is great. <laughs> a future Star Wars writers, I, I hope you're taking notes. Uh, but anyway, so back to uh, Philip Ball's article. So he he echoes the sentiments of many experts I've read who who have deep familiarity with chemistry, who generally say that. 
Yeah, carbon is just so much better at building complex molecules than silicon. Uh, silicon really does not seem like a very good candidate for creating life. Again, maybe our imagination is being limited in some way, but but it really looks like carbon is the good stuff. If if we're if we're going to find life elsewhere in the universe, a lot of astrobiologists seem to think that carbon is just the way it's going to be. Uh, for example, Ball quotes an astrobiologist named Charles Cockle of the University of Edinburgh, who thinks that, yeah, alien life could be very different. Maybe there's a lot that is hard for us to imagine, but that whatever it is, it's going to be carbon-based and it's going to require water, and that this will be a universal norm no matter what planet or part of space you're on. Uh, and he does he does admit, quote, I have a quite conservative view, which science generally proves is misguided, hmm. uh, but he, he holds the view nonetheless. So, when looking for carbon molecules to form the precursors to life, we already know that a substantial number of them can be and are readily formed in the vacuum and in deep space. Uh, as we mentioned already, both sugars and amino acids, we have evidence that both of these things can be formed outside the environment of a planet, maybe on the surface of a comet or just on an ice grain floating around in a dust cloud in space. And of course, uh, you know, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. These sugars like ribose are uh, important ingredients in forming nucleic acids. So, uh, so the, like this is the stuff you would need. And typically these things are formed through uh, simple chemical and photochemical processes. So uh, Ball mentions a typical chemical reaction called uh, Strecker synthesis that could be responsible for the formation of amino acids in space, uh, but also that these things can be formed by exposure of precursor chemicals to radiation, typically ultraviolet light. Now, this part I thought was interesting. Ball writes, quote, It looks at first as though these reactions should not take place in deepest space without a source of heat or light to drive them. Molecules encountering one another in frigid, dark conditions do not have enough energy to get a chemical reaction started. It's as if they run into a barrier that is too high for them to jump over. However, in the 1970s, the Soviet chemist Vitaly Goldansky showed otherwise. Some chemicals could react even when chilled to just four degrees above absolute zero, which is about as cold as space gets. They just needed a bit of help from high-energy radiation such as gamma rays or electron beams, like the cosmic rays that whiz through all of space. And so maybe there is some hope for, for deep space uh, stimulation of the chemical reactions that lead to life. Uh, given these types of inputs, like, like gamma rays or, or cosmic rays, uh, given these inputs which are possible in outer space, Goldansky found evidence that some long-chain molecules could form, such as formaldehyde chains that are several hundred molecules long. But there's a, there's a catch, there's a downside. While space can form these precursor molecules... The molecules encounter another problem, which is continued exposure to the same radiation sources that formed them in the first place. Uh, Ball cites uh, this, this guy Charles Cockle again, saying that they are just as likely to smash molecules as they are to form them. Potential biomolecules, progenitors of proteins and RNA, say, would be broken apart faster than they were being produced. And to come back to the Nile episode, this reminds me of what we talked about in that episode with uh, theories about the formation of life on Earth and the role of water. Because, again, water would play this stimulating and destructive role in the, in the early chemical evolution of life. Water is a key ingredient in Earth-based models of chemical evolution, but it also easily destroys the delicate organic molecules it creates. And that's one of the reasons that it's been hypothesized that there are these wet-dry cycles that uh, that would have allowed the first cells to come together. So ultimately, uh, the, the experts that Ball consults here seem to think it's pretty unlikely that we would uh, see in these really cold environments in deep space, like on the surfaces of ice grains, even though these precursor molecules to life can be formed, it seems unlikely that these environments would form enough complex molecules and have them survive long enough to kick off chemical evolution and really, really uh, bring together space-based life. But I, I want to get into another option in just a second here that could explain where something like this organism comes from. Uh, but before that, I, I was just wondering also, like, okay, why the complex morphology of the exogorth? 
you know, complex more. So it's got like a body with different parts, like the animals mm-hmm. we see on earth. It's got a mouth with teeth and it's got something that looked like little eye stalks and it's got a head and a tail and it's, it's very differentiated. Uh, complex morphology arises on earth. I think as a reaction to complex environments, right? Like if you look at all the body parts on an animal, these are parts that have arisen in response to different qualities and challenges of the environment in which the animal evolved. Animals need to, I mean, not all animals, I guess there are sessile animals, but most animals that move, they've got these different parts because they need to move around and do different types of things. They have different types of predators and prey, etc. The asteroid in The Empire Strikes Back does not seem to me to be a complex environment. Like, so if anything was living there in reality, I feel like I could more easily imagine a sort of mat of bacteria just harvesting radiation on the surface of the asteroid uh, rather than rather than like a complex differentiated large animal. But th- that makes me think, well, what if these organisms didn't first evolve in space, but this is this is sort of a transplant operation? Mm. Yeah, this would seem to make more sense, right? Yeah, uh, the the idea that it's it's worm shaped because this worm shape that it has once served it well in a non asteroid environment. Exactly. So, I think all of our listeners now probably know about the animal I'm about to bring up, but but it's worth revisiting the details. The the mighty tardigrade, also <laughs> known as the water bear, a truly awe inspiring organism. Yeah, they're they're absolutely incredible. Tardigrades are animals. They're not bacteria or fungus. They're animals like us. They're even bilateral animals. They have bilateral symmetry like we do. So they're not like sponges, but they are extremely tiny. Uh, Tardigrades are ubiquitous within Earth's biosphere. You'll find them on the highest mountain peaks, in marine caves, in moss, in Antarctica. They're basically everywhere. And as far as I can find evidence of, they are the only known animal that has been documented to survive prolonged exposure to the raw vacuum of space. And they do it, apparently, by taking specific steps to avoid some of the nastiness that we talked about earlier when we were talking about uh, humans being exposed to a vacuum. Now, of course, one of their main defense mechanisms has got to be just that they're they're so cute. Like they imagined that one day they would be discovered by humans, and if they were not so cute, we, we would not take so kindly to, to – uh, to finding out that this is really their planet and we're just on it. Um, but they're, they're so adorable. You, you, you kind of don't get earth jealous. Yeah. The, uh, uh, what was the, the, the German description, the, the, the Kleine Wasserbaren, the, 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 the tiny water bears. Yeah. Or the little moss piglets. Some people yep, say yep. that. Yeah. They look like a cross. I, I think I've seen somewhere described as a cross between a caterpillar and a teddy bear. That's pretty accurate. I keep seeing them pop up in animated shows recently. Um, really? Yeah, I just was watching a show with the fam, and there was a race of of creatures on another world that were clearly based on on water bears. And then there was another cartoon we were watching where they were like futuristic mutated water bears that live in the water, and if they get in the water, you drink the water, then they get in your brain and start controlling you, Ooh. stuff like that. Uh, nice. So, uh, clearly, they strike a chord. Yeah, I mean, there, there's something about the way they look and the way that we've already started describing them that um, it, it lends itself well to further imagination. Yeah. So about their hardiness and ability to survive uh, to survive a vacuum, I was reading a 2015 New York Times article about water bears by Cornelia Dean, and this article discusses the tardigrade's ability to survive unbelievably harsh environmental conditions. So if a tardigrade encounters extreme drought or sudden changes in temperature or water salinity or other types of environmental threats, the tardigrade can enter a kind of hibernation state where its metabolism throttles down to 0.01% of its standard rate. So that's one ten thousandth of its regular metabolism. During this process, almost all of the water content is voided out of the tardigrade's body, and the tardigrade curls up into this dehydrated shell state called a tun, spelled T-U-N. Uh, so uh, Cornelia Dean writes, quote, Tons can be subjected to atmospheric pressure 600 times the surface of Earth, and they will bounce right back. They can be chilled to more than 300 degrees Fahrenheit below zero for more than a year, no problem. The European Space Agency once sent tons into space. 
two-thirds survived simultaneous exposure to solar radiation and the vacuum of space. This is not something that can be said of any other animal that I know about. I think this is the only one we're aware of. Uh, and it really seems like this dehydration is is one of the main keys to survival in the state. Because with all the water evacuated, you won't get these rapid boiling and freezing effects of, of the water content that can occur in space that led to some of the really gross outcomes we were talking about earlier. In fact, the evacuation of the water content counterintuitively apparently even affects the tardigrade's ability to survive exposure to extreme radiation. You wouldn't think those things were correlated, but Dean writes, quote, When cosmic radiation hits water in a cell, it produces a highly reactive form of oxygen that damages cell DNA. The ton doesn't have this problem. Tons have been reconstituted after more than a century and brought back to life as tardigrades, looking not a day older. So no frozen tongue for the tardigrade and no radiation damage either. So if you're, if you're looking for a candidate for something that could possibly take hold a life in the void, I'm not saying a tardigrade could like take up life on an asteroid. It seems like eventually it would just like its window for life would close. But mm -hmm. using our imaginations here, this might be trending in the right direction. And I want to take it a step further because did you know that there are probably tardigrades on the moon? Oh, wow. Not native to the moon. I want to be very clear. They're from Earth, but they're on the moon now, uh, possibly still alive and in this, this ton state. Just awaiting the possibility that they'll get splashed with water again. Right. So I was reading about this in an article on Vox by Brian Resnick called Tardigrades, the Toughest Animals on Earth, Have Crash Landed on the Moon. Uh, this was from 2019, and it covers the fact – I think this is actually drawing from an article that was originally in Wired in 2019 that had some interviews with the, the people involved. But the the short version is that in April of 2019, there was a lunar lander called a Barashit, which was scheduled to become the first privately funded spacecraft ever to land on the moon. Uh, it was originally a competitor for the Google Lunar X Prize, but that window had passed. But the mission was still scheduled. And it was controlled by a group called Israel Aerospace Industries that was based out of Yehud, Israel. And after landing on the surface, it was planned to take some readings of the moon's magnetism. But unfortunately, there was a mission failure. There was a critical computer error, I think, during its descent or before. And the probe ended up crash landing on the moon. And so you would think, okay, well, the craft was destroyed, end of story. But there was something on the craft. Uh, there was something uh, much of interest aboard. There was a small installation created by a group called the Arch Mission Foundation. And uh, speaking to Daniel Oberhaus of Wired, the group claims that they believe their cargo may have survived the crash. And their cargo, it included several things. I mean, the idea was they were trying to send up to the moon a record of Earth civilization that could last for billions of years. So maybe like if humanity goes extinct and aliens ever get to the moon, they could find some records of Earth from this little uh, from this little installation on this lunar lander. And so part of it was a library of information that was etched onto a nickel metal disc that had like a bunch of English Wikipedia pages <laughs> and some uh, some classic books. Uh, but it also had samples of human tissue, uh, like human blood, and it had tardigrades. Oh, man, I hope that they screenshotted, uh, essentially screenshotted Wikipedia at a time when there were no, like, trolley entries added right. or incorrect information. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a cutoff period there, and now it's it's up there on the moon. That's right. Yeah, I wonder how many uh, citation-needed tags the aliens are going to run into. <laughs> uh, but uh, to read from Resnick's article here, quote, Many of those tardigrades are coated in a protective resin, much like how amber preserves long-dead mosquitoes that were once trapped in tree sap. According to Wired, a co-creator of the library believes the disc survived the crash. In the best-case scenario, Barashit ejected the Arch Mission Foundation's lunar library during impact, and it lies in one piece somewhere near the crash site, Wired reports. Wow. So, water bears on the moon, at least potentially, may, may be still viable. So I would say this is still not super plausible if you're if you're going to be really strict about it. But uh, to, to play our hand as far as we can, 
I'm going to say that I think the Exogorth was originally some type of extremely hardy water bear type creature that crash landed via spaceship on an asteroid in a heavily populated stretch of space and somehow adapted to the new environment over millions of years of evolution. Uh, I'm still not quite sure how it survives without an atmosphere. That doesn't seem very possible uh, because while the tardigrade can for a while, it's only able to survive that through entering this cryptobiotic state, the ton. Uh, so it's, it's harder to imagine an organism doing its life and doing full metabolism while simultaneously being exposed to the vacuum. Uh, maybe if the exogorth and the minoc have some kind of biology that allows them to live without water content, because it seems like one of the main problems with being exposed to the vacuum and trying to live is that the organisms we're thinking of are sort of uh, heterogeneous mixtures of different states of matter. They've got some gas content, some liquid content, and some solid content, and th that that just doesn't all hold together super well when exposed to a vacuum. The low pressure messes with your liquid and your gas contents. Plus, I mean, I, I can't honestly say that it seems like the exogorth in the movie is all is purged of water because I think, as we mentioned, it's got fog in its in its belly. So yeah, it's, oh, it's very oh well. swampy in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not a dry heat. <laughs> um, you know, it, it almost is a sauna type environment. It would be interesting to see if there was like a treatment of this where uh, where one of these uh, exogorths is actually like a, a vacation destination where you Ooh. you know you go to to, to sweat it out. Uh, but as far as I know, that that does not currently exist. Another awesome idea, they, man! They should hire you to write one of these upcoming movies. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. Um, at any rate, the Exogorth, certainly one of the, the cooler uh, alien monster type species that uh, that we discover in the Star Wars movies uh, and a great reveal as well. I, I always love that scene where you finally see the whole thing like just, you know, leaping out of that, uh, that yeah. hole in the asteroid trying to grab the Millennium Falcon. I love how it bends over as it bites. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess another thing that's wonderful about it is that it's not certainly not a cheap creation. Like it has, they put a lot of skill and a lot of love into creating it, but it also kind of looks like an oven mitt, you know? So it, it has this, uh, it's, it's basic um, body shape is uh, is a big hand puppet, you know, but, mm -hmm. uh, but they make it, into something that is, uh, you know, that, that goes beyond hand puppets. So I don't know, but it, it still kind of simultaneously hits both those uh, uh, those frequencies for me. I love it. Give me more monsters like that. Puppets, models, uh, it, instead of the computer animation, please. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we have time for. At least one more oh, yeah. uh, consideration here in the episode. So for my selection uh, for today, uh, I, basically, I, I went to my son and I said, hey, Joe and I are doing these episodes on creatures from the, uh, the Star Wars world. What mm -hmm. should we cover? And without any deliberation, he said, Togrutus. Uh, he's been obsessed with Togrutas over the past year, uh, often discussing their key anatomical features, their liku and their montrails, uh, just wondering aloud, what do they feel like? What do, you know, what is their, uh, how flexible are they? Um, what, do, <laughs> um, how do they move as the, uh, as individual Togrutas get older and so forth? And so it was a very popular, um, discussion area. So I, I owe it to him to consider them here. Now, are these the uh, the creatures? These are humanoid creatures, right? So they're they're like sentient humanoid, not like some space monster. And they have a kind of uh, they have a biological feature that kind of looks like a long hat or headdress. Mm -hmm. Yep, they have yeah they have these uh, these appendages on their head that do look like a headdress, and certainly strike that that chord when you're looking at them. And they are. Um, yeah. So basically, yeah, you have two different sets. So you have the montrails, and these are two large cone-like horns on the top of their head, sometimes said to be hollow. And then you have the liku. These are three fleshy appendages, also called headtails, that protrude downward, two on either side uh, beneath the montrails, and one behind the head. Uh, these are sometimes compared to the head appendages of the Twi'leks, uh, which I believe you're familiar with these from Return of the Jedi. Yes, uh, from Jabba the Hutt's little lackey guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But while the, the Liku of the Twi'leks 
um, you know, are, are supposed to contribute uh, to communication, like they have like subtle movements that they make with them. Uh, the Liku of the Togruta seem mostly motionless, though with varying degrees of rigidity. They might have to do with age or environmental conditions or in, in many cases, like what you know, what do, what degree of flexibility is inherent in the uh, the makeup, special effects, or in the computer animations being used? You know, this is funny because I was sort of considering picking the Twi'lek actually, because uh, yeah. I, I was thinking about oh the 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 weird like head tails those things until I saw you had picked this. So I feel like we got our head tail bases covered. You, <laughs> you you're going to be the Liku and Montrals expert here. I feel like there's a little more to talk about with with the uh, the Takrutas because you have you have these two different uh, features going on. Yeah. So um, in case you don't you're not you don't know offhand who I'm talking about with the Togrutas, I should point out the two most notable Togrutas in the Star Wars galaxy, both of whom uh, were Jedi. So mm-hmm. there's Jedi Master Shocked Tai, uh, hero uh, general of the Clone Wars, and uh, she fought in pivotal battles on Geonosis, Kamino, and Coruscant, and served as the Jedi representative on the world of Kamino, and she was killed at the close of the Clone Wars by Darth Vader. Uh, but the even more famous uh, uh, Togruta character is Jedi Commander Ahsoka Tano, hero of the Clone Wars, later a rebel operative. Uh, she was the Padawan of Anakin Skywalker, and she was voiced by Ashley Eckstein on the Clone Wars and later played in live action by Rosario Dawson. I would say she's not only the most beloved Star Wars character of the modern era, but probably at this point, one of the most beloved Star Wars characters of all time. Like she's she's up there. Wait, why do I not know this character? What is she? What is she? What properties is she from? <laughs> so she pops up in the Clone Wars animated series. Um, okay, the, the long, that. the long run, not the initial one. Um, you know, that the was uh, very short form. This is mm-hmm. the uh, the later one, uh, the computer animated uh, version. This and is so the one she, you liked a lot. Oh, I, I mean, I like I like all the the uh, oh, okay. Clone Wars animated, <laughs> but but yeah, this one was was particularly good. Uh, enjoyed going through all that with my son over the past years. But yeah, she's in, introduced in that series early on as as Anakin's Padawan, mm-hmm. and uh, you follow her throughout this whole series. She kind of grows up, and then as you know, as a as an adult, she's a character in the Rebels series, and she finally popped up as a live action character in the second season of the Mandalorian and she's going to have uh, her own spin-off series etc. Okay. Uh, she's in all the stuff I haven't seen. Right, right. Okay. Uh, but you know, she's just a really well fleshed out character, um you know, just a, a you know, strong female character and uh, and an alien character uh with a lot of depth to them. You know, so often in the Star Wars universe we're just focusing on the human characters yeah. amid the aliens and here we have one of the aliens. Yeah, I mean, you got to love Han Solo, Princess Leia, and all them, but we've got enough humans. I want to have some real creatures as heroes. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, coming back to their biology, yeah, for the most part, they're they're very very human, though. But they do have these mantras and the Liku. So, what are they doing? What do what are they for? Well, as far as the Liku go, uh, again, they seem to play a role in communication. Uh, in other species, but not so in the Togruta. They don't seem to to move around or anything. Now, they do seem to grow throughout their life, and there does seem to be some degree of sexual dimorphism in that they're longer in females than in males. Um, so, obviously, they could have evolved to aid in mate selection, to communicate fitness to potential mates. Uh, they are quite colorful and eye-catching, after all. Uh, and, you know, we see this in the waddles of various bird species, for instance. Hmm. And uh, I think I think Liku are quite comparable to waddles. Uh, in other species like goats, however, waddles or tassels, as they're sometimes known, are generally thought to have no uh, purpose. Uh, I was reading about this in a book, a 2020 book by Sue Weaver, titled The Goat. It's just all about goats and how they work. <laughs> a chapter about the parts that have no purpose. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It seems it seems as if wattles uh, or tassels have no purpose. So it's possible that you have this feature in this alien humanoid species that ultimately has no purpose, but may but you know is a part of 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 their anatomy and is you know factored into their own ideas of beauty and representation. Now, as for the the Montrals, uh, we have a far more specific purpose in the Star Wars lore. Uh, they allow an individual to sense the movement of objects around them through echolocation hmm. and, uh, and can sense up to 82 feet or roughly 25 meters. 
Now, echolocation is, of course, the location of objects by reflected sound, uh, used in a number of terrestrial birds and mammals, uh, either used in the hunting of prey or in the navigation of their environments, such as trees and caves. Um, Now, I was looking around at some possible parallels, and I think a good comparison for the togruta might actually be the shrew, which uses echolocation, quote, for habitat assessment at close range, according to Why do shrews Twitter communication or simple uh, echo based orientation by Siemens et al. published in the Royal Society Biology Letters from 2009. So, again, this would be a situation where the shrew or perhaps the togruta is not using its echolocation like, say, like a bat, you know, to hunt in a, you know, a nighttime environment. They would be using it more uh, as a way to assist in their understanding of their immediate environment. Now, okay, so we, we with these uh, possible echolocation horns, again, we're talking about the, the mantras on um, the togrudas, but this actually come, brings us back to the, the liku, those, um, those, those tails that are hanging down, um, because sometimes wattles are used by organisms such as the umbrella bird to aid in the production of sounds. So perhaps that's what's going on with the togruda as well. I, I don't think we ever see or hear a togruda doing this, but I was wondering if possibly, like, that's the reason for this combination of headgear. Like, the, the liku would have been used, at least originally, to create sounds that would aid in echolocation uh, that mm-hmm. was then picked up by uh, the mantrals. Oh, like you also see, I think, in some marine mammals, like some of yeah. the equipment on the front of their head is not just used for receiving the sounds, but for producing the sounds. Yeah. So, uh, so again, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything in the shows to... Uh, to support this idea. Maybe it's somebody's written about it uh, and, and gone to this this area. I'm not sure. But I was thinking, well, okay, on one hand, maybe it's simply out of our range of hearing as a supposedly you know human viewer of this space drama. Um, or it could have to do with the fact that the two Togruta that we spend the most time with are, are, are Force-sensitive and they're Jedi-trained. Uh, so perhaps most of the time they have little use for these um, more archaic sense uh, features. But then again, force sensitivity would, you know, it would open up a new sense realm for an individual. But I don't mean, I don't know if that would mean you would just completely abandon another sense realm, you know, uh, even if it was decreased or, or partially, um, you know, atrophied, uh, you know, due to evolution. Well, you know, I think about in the very first Star Wars movie, uh, how a, a large part of what the force is shown to do is to aid in the guidance of actions without the use of senses. So yeah. when uh, when Luke is training with Obi-Wan Kenobi while they're on the way to the Death Star, they put the blast shield down on the helmet so that mm-hmm. he can't see the remote while he's training with it. He's supposed to be able to tell what's there without using his primary sense of his eyes. Same way, um, you know, he turns off his targeting computer when he's aiming the proton torpedoes into the Death Star. He, yeah. he somehow is is abandoning or surrendering his either natural or technologically aided senses in in almost as a kind of supplication to the power of the force. Right? It's like the you put the blast shield down or you turn off the targeting computer as a sign of faith, as showing that you you truly forsake these senses and you trust the force totally. Well, there you go. There's there's precedent for it after all. <laughs> So anyway, it's a fun exercise, I think, to, to you know to look at something like that on a, on a on a fictional alien species that you know it's clearly there mostly because it looks cool, mm-hmm. uh, but try to imagine well, what what could it have done, what what could its purpose actually be? And again, some of it is baked into the the, the canon already. The idea that there is some these were sense features of some sort, uh, but yeah, it's it's fun to then try and break it down further and imagine exactly what they were doing and what it would be like uh, to have. Uh, those those mantras and liku, um, you know, without getting into my, my son's additional concerns over, well, what do they feel like? How flexible <laughs> are they? <laughs> I'm sorry, this is unacceptable. We need an answer. Rob, what do they feel like? Oh, well, I mean, I, I guess you could say, I mean, what does the waddle of a bird or um, or the tassels of a goat, what do they feel like? I guess they would be kind of fleshy. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, the horns would be kind of rigid. Uh, yeah. And I guess it would depend on, you know, how how old they are and how, you know, if they do they lotion, do they lotion their <laughs> their uh, their liku enough to keep uh-huh. them, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, from getting too dried out. I don't know. It's like the self-care manuals for the Togruta. It's like, hey, you know, remember to oil your oil, your liku. <laughs> don't. Well, the Jedi tend to they seem to take pretty good care of themselves. How often do you see like a truly scruffy Jedi? 
That's true. Uh, one thing I always noticed, Obi-Wan Kenobi's beard is so well-trimmed and sculpted. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think uh, you just have that extra, yeah, that extra time uh, on your hands, you know? Uh, you know, even as a, even as an old uh, Jedi, he he, uh, he took the time. I, Yoda was pretty scruffy, um, especially towards the end, but he was ancient, so. Right, yeah. He's earned it. <laughs> okay, should we call part one there? Because we've got plenty more uh, alien yeah. necropsies from the Star Wars universe to, to come back and explore next time. That's right. We have there's some more fun uh, specimens to discuss and to dissect. Uh, so in the meantime, we'd love to hear from everyone. What are your thoughts on uh, on giant Star Wars space worms and uh, fleshy appendages to uh, alien species? Uh, you know, let us know of anything we missed, uh, any details uh, that we're not aware of from from canon or extended universe that might uh, you know further uh, fill in some of the holes here. And uh, yeah, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, such as the you know past episodes where uh, we talked about the the Death Star blowing things up or, uh, or or certainly the mighty Sarlacc. You can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.